we are in Palm Sunday. We are thinking about God's Word uh, as it prepares us for the celebration next Sunday of Easter. Of course, we're worshiping this morning, and this is a celebration of the resurrection as well. I want to look at a passage from Mark chapter 11. And if, uh, if you don't have a Bible, you can just follow in the bulletin. The passage is there in the bulletin, Mark 11, 11 through 25. Let me just say this, and I'll read the passage. In Mark's gospel, the passage that we're about to look at comes right after what we call the triumphal entry. Now, the triumphal entry is what we remember and we celebrate on Palm Sunday. It's when Jesus fulfills the prophecy that we used as our call to worship. Our call to worship was from the prophet Zechariah, and it talks about, Hey, Jerusalem! Your king is coming to you, and he's not on a war horse. He's not on a steed. He's on a, the foal of a donkey. And quite literally, Jesus rides into Jerusalem, not on a war horse, but on this little foal. I mean, almost like where his feet, would, he'd have to raise them to, to not hit the ground. Little foal of a donkey. And people shout, and they yell, and they wave palm branches. They put their cloaks on the ground. They say, Hosanna to the king. And he rides into Jerusalem, the triumphal entry. So this passage is the, the very next thing. Let me say this, and I'll read it. Um, one of the things that is said of God in the Bible is that man, now I don't just mean males, but humanity looks at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. Now, that said, clearly one place in the Bible, you see it throughout the Scripture, that that we look at externals, we look at what's visible and measurable, but the Lord sees the heart. And here's the thing, that's not just true of individuals. It's true of groups. It's true of institutions. That something to us that may look very mundane, the Lord sees it as important and thriving. But by contrast, something that looks really exciting and alive and it's hitting on all cylinders, it looks that way to us, the Lord sees the heart that there's something different there. Uh, This passage is a powerful demonstration that man looks at the outward appearance, the Lord looks at the heart. Let's look at this. Mark chapter 11, beginning in verse 11. And he, Jesus, entered Jerusalem and went into the temple. And when he had looked around at everything, as it was already late, he went out to Bethany with the twelve. On the following day, when they came from Bethany, he was hungry. And seeing in the distance a fig tree and leaf, he went to see if he could find anything on it. When he came to it, he found nothing but leaves, for it was not the season for figs. And he said to it, May no one ever eat fruit from you again. And his disciples heard it. And they came to Jerusalem. And he entered the temple and began to drive out those who sold and those who bought in the temple. And he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. And he would not allow anyone to carry anything through the temple. 
And he was teaching them and saying to them, Is it not written, My house shall be called a house of prayer for all the nations? But you have made it a den of robbers. And the chief priest and the scribes heard it and were seeking a way to destroy him, for they feared him, because all the crowd was astonished at his teaching. And when evening came, they went out of the city. As they passed by in the morning, they saw the fig tree withered away to its roots. And Peter remembered and said to him, Rabbi, look, the fig tree that you cursed has withered. And Jesus answered them, Have faith in God. Truly I say to you, whoever says to this mountain, Be taken up and thrown into the sea, and does not doubt in his heart, but believes that what he says will come to pass, it will be done for him. Therefore, I tell you, whatever you ask in prayer, believe that you have received it, and it will be yours. And whenever you stand praying, forgive. If you have anything against anyone, so that your Father also who is in heaven may forgive you your trespasses. This is God's word. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you that you've brought us through another week. Thank you that even in this room, the men and women represent you preserving us, watching over us in our homes, away from our homes, on the road, maybe in the air, and that you've brought us back safely here. And it's no small thing that we're here and your word is being opened and proclaimed. We pray that the very thing that we need to hear, that you would cause us to hear it, that you would dig out our ears so that what needs to go in and to go down into our hearts would do so and could do so. So please do that, we ask in Christ's name. Amen. In 2003, there was a student in, uh, at Stanford University, and she withdrew from Stanford and gave herself full-time to an idea that she had for a new company. Her name was Elizabeth Holmes. She was 19 years old at the time, 2003. And uh, she began to develop an idea, and this is, it was kind of a, um, sort of a wedding of biotech stuff and just Silicon Valley. This company was based in Palo Alto, California, very, very Silicon Valley. But the concept was that instead of having to give vials of, of blood for a battery of blood tests, that this new technology would be developed and just uh, from a, a hundredth as much, and this company even said perhaps from a thousandth as much blood, which would represent a pinprick, this whole battery of blood tests could be done uh, more quickly, more economically, more efficiently. And so it really began to garner interest. The name of the company was Theranos. And uh, she began to raise money, and people began to just about throw money at this company. Pretty soon she looked up, and the valuation of Theranos was $1 billion dollars. Uh, about five or six years ago, the valuation of Theranos was at $10 billion. And to make a long story short, and by the way, th th she had developed 
her, her team had developed something called an Edison machine, which would be the sort of portable way of doing these blood tests. Walgreens was already queued up to put this in their stores. Lots of money had traded hands between Walgreens and Theranos. Two things happened a few years ago. The grandson of one of the board members was working at Theranos and realized that it was smoke and mirrors, and he became a whistleblower. And in tandem with that, there was a reporter at the Wall Street Journal who began doing research and broke the story about what was really going on in this company. And as of last year, the company is worthless. It's worth zero. It's gone. $10 billion valuation, not that long ago. It's worth nothing. Uh, this happens sometimes. It happens big. It happens... Lo there have been local businesses in Greenville that if you looked at them, you'd think, man, they, they are blowing and going. They're buying this and doing that and sponsoring this, and then poof, they're gone. That, that the fundamentals were never there, no matter how shiny and alive and exciting it looked. Uh, Elizabeth Holmes was on the front of Fortune. She was on the front of Inc. Uh, she did a TED Talk. She, she was dubbed the, the, the new young Steve Jobs. She would even sport a black turtleneck in sort of a Steve Jobs-esque way. It was nothing. Um... That's kind of a visual parable of what can happen spiritually in a group of people or even in an individual. And you can see this in the Bible. Uh, like, I'll give you an example. One of the high watermarks of the history of God's people, really the high watermark before the New Testament, is the Exodus. And I mention this all the time. The, the biggest act of salvation before the New Testament is the Exodus. And, I mean, there was a moment where the people come out. They think the Egyptian army is going to kill them. And they're saying, did God bring us out here in the wilderness to kill us and our babies? And God rescues them, wipes out the Egyptian army, protects them, takes them through the Red Sea supernaturally, makes the sea collapse in on the Egyptian army. They're rescued. They're saved. He's going to bring them into the promised land. And the people in mass celebrate and worship God. And I'm telling you, if you and I had video of the Israelite people at that moment, just clapping and dancing and lifting their hands and singing about God is my rock, my salvation, my warrior, you would think, man, Israel is doing great. And I mean, they are just weeks out from essentially chucking the faith and bowing down and worshiping a golden calf. You know, man looks at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. I, I want you to look at, at, these, at this passage. There are two things going on. I'm calling this the temple and the tree. Mark, the gospel writer, has made sure that you know that these go together. He's, he has laid this out where you see very clearly this thing with the fig tree and this incident in the temple are very related, okay? The temple and the tree. So let's think in terms of two things. Appearance and reality. How does it look? And then what's really the deal? So the appearance. Let me start on the temple. This is, uh, this is Passover week, and 
It is an exciting time to be in the city of Jerusalem. Now, we can't know for sure because we don't have exact records and we don't have, you know, again, video. But scholars estimate that at least 200,000 extra people came to Jerusalem for Passover. Now, remember, this is before high-rises. This is before skyscrapers. 200,000 extra bodies into what's already a very dense ancient city. And um, they come with money, and they come with excitement, and, uh, and there were all kinds of things that you needed to do. If you were a devout Jew, you needed to pay the temple tax, and it had to be paid in local coinage. And so there, there was a place set up in the temple where you could change your local money. You know, there were Jews from other countries. And you could get it changed into a Tyrian coin, and you could pay your temple tax. But, you know, the biggie was just the Passover itself. And so people come, and they need to buy their Passover lamb, and they need to buy other supplies. And you know how human history works? Where there's uh, demand, there is supply. And so folks selling stuff, they converged on Jerusalem, or, or already lived in Jerusalem. So it's loud, and it's exciting, and there's people, there's people everywhere. Uh, think about this. The temple of that day was not the temple that Solomon built. You need to know that. That temple was destroyed by the Babylonians. But this was the temple that was rebuilt by Zerubbabel and then um, sort of rounded out by King Herod. It occupied, the temple grounds, this is amazing, in that day, occupied one-fourth of the surface area of Jerusalem. It was huge. And uh, the way the temple mount worked and the, the area around the temple, there were different courts, and these courts are sort of like uh, boxes inside of boxes. The biggest boxes, the most people could go into the more inside the box, the more selective it is. The ultimate box is the Holy of Holies that only the high priest can go into on the Day of Atonement. But the outermost box and the biggest paved area was the court of the Gentiles. And uh, this is supposed to be a place where, like Solomon prayed, if you heard the scripture reading, that if somebody who hasn't become a Jew, a man who's never been circumcised, but he's come to believe that the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob is the one true God. He can come to this place. He can't go into the Jewish part of the temple, but he can be at this court at the temple, and, and he can make his prayer known to God, and there's a designated space for him. Well, all these money changers and sellers of animals and, and customers, they had to gather somewhere, so they gathered in the court of the Gentiles. Uh, I want you to think about this. There were big chunks of Israel's history where the Passover was not celebrated. Israel wandered off. Uh, they worshipped other gods. They weren't being what they were supposed to be. And they just didn't even celebrate the Passover. So, I mean, if, if you had been there and seen 200,000 plus people there, along with all the locals, to celebrate the Passover, people coming from other nations people coming to buy lambs and do the thing that God required, especially in light of how often Israel attempts had been made to wipe them out. If you looked at that, I think you'd have to look at it and say, wow, all is not lost. 
Look at how God's plan, look at how God's people continue. So, crowded, active, you know, the court of the Gentiles was paved with stone, marble walls, uh, acoustically live, loud, active. Verse 11, Jesus entered Jerusalem and went into the temple. And when he had looked around at everything, and, and that, that verb that's translated looked around in Mark, it typically means an evaluating look. It's not just a 360, it's a discerning look. It's an evaluation, a diagnostic. Jesus looks around at everything, and then he goes to this, this other town of Bethany outside of Jerusalem. So that's how the temple looks. How does the, uh, how does the tree look? Because this is the next thing you read, verse 12. On the following day when they came from Bethany, he was hungry, and seeing in the distance a fig tree and leaf, he went to see if he could find anything on it. When he came to it, he found nothing but leaves, for it was not the season for figs. And he said to it, May no one ever eat fruit from you again. And his disciples heard it. Can we all admit that this is confusing? Can we all admit that it seems like Jesus is just, it's just got off on the wrong foot? Which would not be consistent with everything else that we know about Jesus. Uh, let, me, let me try to cover a lot in a little bit of space here. We talk about Jesus being the prophet, the priest, and the king. And this was a time where he really had his prophet hat on, if I can put it that way. And something that you find that the prophets do in the Old Testament is sometimes they won't just verbally tell God's will. They'll visually do something that God told them to do, and the visual says something for God. So maybe you take an object, and God has a prophet do something with this object. Maybe take something and bury it or put it somewhere, and that tells a story. Or the prophet's supposed to look a certain way, and that tells a story. If you just read it, at first blush, it looks like Jesus walks over. First, it looks like, well, I don't know if there's fruit on here or not. Well, I can't find any fruit on here. It's not the season for it. And he's just hungry and hacked, and he curses it. And that sounds like he cusses at it. Well, no. Part of the symbolic act, part of him doing a prophetic, symbolic, visual act, is him going over to look and see, is there any fruit here? Part of the symbolism, I'm going over to this tree that sure looks leafy. It sure looks alive and healthy from a distance. Just looks like it would have figs on it. So part of the act is I'm going over and I'm going to find fruit because it sure looks like there'd be some. Now these go together. Boy, that temple, it is just hopping. Boy, that fig tree, it's sure leafy and green. By appearance. Let me ask you something. Um, I don't know if you get this question, but I get this question sometimes, and after all these years, I, I'm still not, I, I think I'm not good at answering it. You know, I was having lunch with someone downtown just three days ago, and I bumped into... Um, an acquaintance here in town, and, and uh, she's always very kind to ask about how things are going. And she said, well, how are things at down... She, no, she said, how is your parish? But she meant, how are things at your church? And I'm never quite sure what direction to take with that. You know, I kind of feel like, well, do, uh, do you have 30 minutes? 
You know, or do you want me to do you want me to say like, well, I don't know. Ask me in twenty years, and we'll find out. That's what my friend would say. But if you're ever asked the question, if someone in your life asks you, well, so how's your church going? How's downtown Presbyterian going? How would you approach the answer? What would come to your mind? Would it be attendance? Uh, Membership? Reputation? Giving? Plans for a new building? And listen, those are all presently things for which we are very thankful And I'd rather those things be going up than going down. And in God's great mercy to us, they're going up. But they go up in all kinds of churches. And just because those things go up, uh, or even a, a building literally going up, that's what we can see. But what does the Lord look at? Your man looks at the outward appearance. But the Lord looks at the heart. The heart is the real individual, and the heart is the real church. Not, not the facilities, not the feel, not the trajectory of numbers, but it's who the church really is. Appearance. What about reality? Let's go back to the temple. Verses 15 and 16. They came to Jerusalem, and he entered the temple and began to drive out those who sold and those who bought in the temple, and he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons, and he would not allow anyone to carry anything through the temple. Now, let me say this again. Where is Jesus doing this? Is he just recklessly going haphazardly, violently through the whole temple? He's doing this where the money changing and the selling and all the commercial activity is happening. Where is it happening? It's happening in the court of the Gentiles. What is supposed to be happening in the court of the Gentiles? What's supposed to be happening is that Solomon's prayer for the temple would come true. That the nations, if if you were Arabic, if you were Egyptian, if you were Greek, and somehow you came to believe that the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob is the true God, even if you haven't been circumcised, even if you haven't fully become Jewish yet, you could go there and stand there with God's approval and the people's approval, and you could pray and be part of what was happening. So when the powers that be thought, okay, where do we set up the the coin exchange? Where do we set up the the, the stalls for all, I mean, all these sheep, all these pigeons, all these, where do we set this up? Well, I tell you what, just set it up in the court of the Gentiles. And that sheds light on what Jesus says next and how he quotes Scripture. Verse 17, he was teaching them and saying to them, Is it not written, now this is a quote from what we call the Old Testament, My house shall be called a house of prayer for all the nations, for all the Gentiles. 
but you have made it into a den of robbers. Now, the chief priests, the scribes, experts in the scripture, did they find that point compelling? Who did they side with? Verse 18, the chief priests and the scribes heard it and were seeking a way to destroy him, for they feared him because all the crowd was astonished at his teaching. Appearance, life, numbers, buzz, energy, participation, religion, reality. I don't care what the prophets say. We're siding with prophet, F-I-T, not with Jesus. That's from the experts in the Old Testament scriptures. That's the reality. What about the reality of the tree? Um, Peter, who is always quick to speak, verse 20, they passed by in the morning, they saw the fig tree withered away to its roots, and Peter remembered and said to him, Rabbi, look, the fig tree that you cursed has withered. Now, what would you expect to happen next? To me, the way the rest of this passage reads, I'm not saying that this is the proof that the Bible's true. I'm just saying, if you were making, if you were writing fictitious scripture, at this point, you would have Jesus pontificate about the meaning and the symbolism of the whole thing. And what does he actually say? Okay, let's go back. Peter says, Rabbi, look, you, you said that thing to that tree, and it withered down to the roots. And what does Jesus say? Have faith in God. And then he begins talking about prayer. Why would he do that? Uh, he talks about forgiveness. You know, the thing that the church must always be doing, and I don't just mean in Greenville, I don't just mean in the South, I mean around the world, is she must throughout the earth keep waving her arms and saying to men and women, do you understand that this is supernatural? That this is not a, this is not sort of a social service that we provide. This is not a club. This is not a group that's just kind of for civic improvement or for our own self-improvement. But that the claims of this book and the claims of the God who is behind that book are supernatural. And here's what that means. You can be a person who's nice and moral and churched and pleasant and helpful. You can appear to be together and not have real faith and not have really been supernaturally transformed from the inside. And you probably find a critical mass of people who are like that in the church south. And I love living in the south. And there's some real advantages to having a lot of churches. But you know what? It comes with some liabilities and some dangers. Um, Jesus says, if you say 
Now, th- this is really important. He didn't just say, if you say to a mountain, be cast into the sea. What does he say? If you say to this mountain, then believe me, if you were standing with him near the Temple Mount by Jerusalem, there would be no doubt what mountain he's talking about. He means the Temple Mount. And, and in a Jewish environment to say, if you have faith, you can say to this mount, be cast into the sea. Jesus is essentially saying, if you have faith, you can ask God to do something that is seemingly impossible, and he'll do it. And then Jesus almost sounds charismatic slash televangelist because he says, if you believe, that you have already received it, if you stand praying and you already believe that you've received it, you will receive it. Now, I I don't want to sound caustic, but do you understand how he's describing a different kind of prayer than just, Lord, we just thank you for this day and we thank you for lunch. And that's not a wicked prayer. I'm just saying it's easy. But to say, Lord... I don't know how in the world you would save this family member or this coworker. I don't know how in the world you would provide me a job when it just looks like everything is a dead end. But I'm going to believe that you are my father that you hear everything I say, you know everything I need, and you are at work in my life. See, that's different. That is the fruit of God's supernatural work in the heart. And, boy, forgiveness is too. And, you know, it's interesting that Jesus describes prayer in terms of standing. He says that's a very, that'd be a Jewish kind of public way of praying. If you're standing praying and you remember that you have something against someone, someone has something against you, drop it. Relinquish it. And forgive that person, not just pretend. Forgive that person in your heart where God sees who you really are. Forgive it and your Father will forgive you your trespasses. Um, is the Lord nudging on you? I mean, even this morning, do you, do you find that you feel like, I, I go to church, I'm, I go to a Bible study, I'm in a community group, I'm trying to do the right thing, but I don't know, is this all there is? It's not all there is. You know, it says that the chief priests and the scribes decided they were going to try to destroy him. They would try to destroy Jesus. In a few days, they did. They destroyed him. And here's what they didn't know would happen. That when that happened, Jesus took away his people's guilt and punishment forever, and he broke the power of sin Do you struggle to forgive? Do you struggle to really, really forgive family that hurt you? 
Do you struggle to really, really forgive the person who betrayed you? Well, first off, you need cleansing. You and I need cleansing. Jesus Christ on the cross secured forgiveness for his unforgiving, grudge-holding people once and for all. But he didn't just do that. He broke the power of sin. Did you know that if you are in Christ, you're a new creation? You're indwelt by the Holy Spirit. You're not what you were. You've been born again. You're not an old you. You're a new you. And because you're in Christ and you're indwelt by the Holy Spirit, you have the power now to forgive. You have the power now to pray boldly. Please don't pray safe things for downtown Perez. Pray bold things for downtown Perez. And please don't just pray safe things for oneself or one's family. Pray bold things for oneself or one's family. What Christ did that coming Friday and through his resurrection that next Sunday secured our sin being taken away and the power of sin being broken forever in our lives so that we don't just look like people that follow Jesus, but we are actually, supernaturally, people who follow Jesus on the inside. Amen. Let's pray together. Father, we ask that we won't look like one thing and then we really are something else. We don't want to seem to be your people. We want to be your people. We don't want to seem to be new creations. We want to be new creations. Father, we don't want to seem to be forgiving and trusting. We want to be forgiving and trusting. So have mercy on us. Lord Jesus, thank you that you took away guilt and you broke the power of sin for people like us. Enable us to throw everything we have onto you, ourselves, our lives, our identity, our thinking, our feeling, our will. Give us trust in you in our heart of hearts. And we ask this in your name. Amen.